You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, to John 17, which we read from earlier. John 17, we're picking up where we left off last time, which is verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 16. John 17, beginning with verse 9 through verse 16. These again are the words of Jesus. He is praying to the Father. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would teach us this morning from your word. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to open your word to our hearts and our minds and open our minds and our hearts to your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, again, uh, these words that Jesus is here speaking Uh, is what the church has historically called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it is really coming to the conclusion of what the church has called the upper room discourse. What's meant by the upper room discourse? Jesus is sharing that final Passover meal with his disciples. And we've been studying this for months. Uh, The uh, message that Jesus gives to uh, the disciples, there are now 11 disciples with Jesus. You'll recall that one of them has uh, departed, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, this morning. Judas has left to betray Jesus, and of course, that sets in motion the apparatus that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is only hours away uh, from being crucified as he prays these words to the Father. And what is he doing? He's preparing his disciples, who will be his apostles, for a new chapter in what we would call redemptive history, a new chapter in the history of God's salvation. And this is a chapter where Jesus will no longer be with them in terms of his physical presence, but he's explaining how he will continue to be with them. And we're going to begin to segue into a little bit of that uh, this morning. Now, uh, J.C. Ryle, some of you are very familiar with the writings of J.C. Ryle. He was a pastor, a theologian who wrote quite a bit uh, in the uh, second half to the uh, end of the 1800s, the 19th century. 
And commenting on these verses, he says there are things here that are hard to understand. That's an understatement. I will tell you um, some of these things. And it's you remember, it's been a long time since I've said this, but John's gospel is deceptively simple. You remember hearing me say that? It's deceptively simple. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read it through the first time, you think, wow, this is great. I, I think I get this. It seems simple on the surface. But then when you read it through the second time, you say, wait a second. This is far more profound than I gave it credit for. You read it through the third time, and you begin to see, oh, my goodness, this is deep. And it just continues, doesn't it? It just continues. And I think we should expect that. There are many mysteries. Last week, we were looking at some of those mysteries. We have to return to some of them this morning. But I think it it almost has to be that way, because what are we doing here? We're being permitted to eavesdrop, if you will, or listen in to the prayer life between Jesus and the Father, which is quite amazing, isn't it? We'd ever want to wonder, how is it that Jesus pray? I know, I know my prayer life is so woefully inadequate. How did the Lord pray to the Father? Well, here we have an extended example of that, don't we? And Jesus begins by praying for the Father to be glorified, and he now segues into, in verse 9, praying for his disciples. And when we come to verse 9, verse 9 is a, a bit of a knee-jerking passage, isn't it? You look at verse 9, Jesus says, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That can be a real knee-jerking passage, huh? You know, we, we, we look at that passage and, and, and we see that there is a sharp distinction being made. Some try to blur that distinction in order to explain this passage. There's no need to do that, and we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't blur anything that's being made sharp. There is a sharp distinction being made in verse 9 between two parties, between two different groups of people. If you look there, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Now, who are the them? The verse itself answers, the them are those whom the Father has given Jesus. Now, you see, we're returning to the doctrine that we were looking at in verse 6 last week. Remember how much time we spent in that. If you look back to verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. In other words, I have revealed your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. And you recall last week, uh, we, we, when we were looking at this verse, we said, you know, when we come to this verse, we make this discovery that there is a group of people that the Father is in possession of in this certain sense that he gives to his Son. And, of course, this takes us into the waters of, of what we call in theology election uh, and predestination. And, you know, you, you can read the writings of J.C. Rowell. You can go back to, the, uh, to probably, I think he's writing his comments on John and maybe the 1870s, if memory serves me correctly. And you can say in his day, there were, the world didn't like these doctrines then. And you go back previous and previous generations, you can see that this has never been a doctrine that has been uh, real popular with the world. This idea of election, this idea of predestination. And one of the reasons uh, for its um, 
um, it's falling out of popularity in our own days because oftentimes it's misunderstood, as I shared last week. Sometimes these particular verses are showing God's side of the equation, if you will. And we must always keep in mind that when we're studying points of theology, there are two sides. There's God's side, and then there is the human side. And this is no different. When it comes to salvation, there is God's side. And in terms of salvation, the scriptures clearly teach that God is sovereign over salvation. You know, and we've seen some of those verses. If you just turn back to John chapter 6, you get some of these verses. They're, they're, when you read them the first time, you say, these are amazing. What are we to make of these? If you go back to John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus here says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everybody see that passage? John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Very clearly showing God's sovereignty over salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, if you look towards the end of the chapter, you go to verse 63. We're told it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Here we see the Spirit is involved in this. And this goes back to what I've been saying. The persons of the Trinity never go solo. They're always working in concert with one another. If you look at verse um, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And if you step outside of John, if you turn, just keep turning left, you'll come to Luke. And keep turning left, you'll come to Matthew or to Mark and then to Matthew. And if you go to Matthew 11 and verse 27, right in there somewhere, verse 27, I believe. Yes, verse 27, Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. Has anybody got a page number? Is anyone using the church's Bible have a page number? I don't know if anyone's using the church's Bible. 816, right? Thank you, Dan. 816? Page 816. You come to Matthew 11, if you look at verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, what, what do we have going on here? Here we see that salvation is in the hands of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is sovereign over salvation. Now, if all we talked about was that, if all we did was hold out God's salvation as I, or God's sovereignty and salvation, as I said last week, we're likely to fall into a form of fatalism or a form of, of determinism. What, is these, what do these isms mean? Well, they mean that we're going to think of it sort of like this. Okay, God is sovereign over salvation. Um, he has written names in the book of life, and if my name's in the book of life, then good, I'm going to heaven. If my name isn't in the book of life, well, then I'm not going to heaven so it doesn't make any difference what I do. That's not biblical predestination. But that's what a lot of people think biblical predestination is. That's not what election is, that's what, but that's what a lot of people think it is. You see, as I said last week, and that's why I want to review, and our, our text really is requiring that we review, uh, you have to, we have to keep God's sovereignty out here. But we also have to bring human responsibility 
into this. God calls. God calls us through his gospel. And we have the moral responsibility to answer that call, don't we? We have the moral responsibility to answer that call. If you go back to John chapter 17 and you look at verse 6, you'll see the human component in that verse. Jesus says, I have manifested or I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You see, they have kept your word. You see the balance in this verse? And it's important that we keep that balance out there. Now, uh, the, the particular day that we live in right now, uh, all, practically all of the emphasis is on the, is on the human component. And it's, it's dangerous. It's fallen into a dangerous uh, side. See, this is, if you can think of this as a road, there's ditches on both sides. If all we do is we, if all we talk about is the sovereignty of God out there, then people are going to think, well, I'm powerless. I just, what do I do? I just wait. Um, I can just, you know, I just wait and hopefully I'm elect. And if I'm elect, then I'll be in someday. No, you're being called to believe. That's the human part of it. But if all we have is the human part of it, we then think, well, I can believe anytime I want. I don't have to believe now. I can believe later. No, that's dangerous. To think that you can believe in God anytime you want. What does the psalmist say? Today, if you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your heart. And preachers in a former day who had a better handle of this, they used to say things like this. Charles Spurgeon used to say, don't think you can repent anytime you please. If the Lord is working on your heart right now, what are you waiting for? Don't think, don't, don't, if he is, if he is, if he is knocking at your door, if you will, don't, don't ignore, answer the door, I think is what Spurgeon would say. Answer the door. There you see the human component. Now, why such a stress on the human component today? Why? I, I think it has a lot to do with the, the, the way ministry has been done in this country for, I don't know how many years, maybe probably close to 200 years, but especially through the 20th century. You know, the 20th century in, the, in America saw the, the, um, the crusades, if you will, the arena evangelism, if you will. And then when you think of arena evangelism, who do you think of? You think of Billy Graham. And I'm not bringing him up to throw any stones at, at him. I, there's an elder up in the North Hills. If you ask him his testimony, he will tell you that he came to faith uh, he, hearing Billy Graham speak, I think, in 1968. And he has walked with the Lord all these years. He's been serving as an elder for I don't know how many years. Uh, but the emphasis, what was Billy Graham doing? Billy Graham's calling people to faith. He's calling people to the Lord. Of course, there's an emphasis on a human, on human decision when you're doing that. But if we bring that into the pulpits in the local church, and that's all we talk about for 50 or 60 years is calling people forward, if you will, and making a decision, discipleship is going to be lacking. We have to make it, we have to understand there's, the, the local pastor is called to be an evangelist. He's called to do the work of evangelism. And I love to do the work of evangelism. I, I absolutely love to go and share Jesus with people. But right now, right now we have to combine with that the work of discipleship as well. You follow me? 
And if we don't do the work of discipleship, if we don't do that properly, what's going to happen? Our doctrines are going to get lopsided. One of the reasons that I like to preach through the verses, verse by verse, is that keeps us from riding our hobby horses, doesn't it? It keeps us from sharing the verses that we like the best over and over again. It keeps us from sharing the passages that we know the best over and over again. It keeps us all learning together. What is next week's assignment? It's the verses that come after the ones we just left off. I will tell you it's a lot of work. And sometimes you look ahead to next week and you think, oh, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go into this. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. What is Jesus talking about here? He's saying, I am praying for them. Who are them? They are the ones whom the Father has given to Jesus. In this case, they are the 11 disciples, right? One is left. They are the 11 disciples. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Now, there are two interpretive issues here we want to avoid. One is worse than the other one. Now, the other one is not so bad. We just want to go a little further. But the one that's really bad is to say, look, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's not praying for the world. Therefore, he doesn't care about the world. Now, why would I bring that up? Is because I have heard conversations that skate perilously close to that. Oh, you just turn to John 17, verse uh, 9 there, and you see Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's not praying for the world. (laughs) Let's get that out of... Right now, he is praying for his disciples. He is not praying for the world. But does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about the world? Does that mean that Jesus never prays for the world? Let's think about the most famous, probably the most famous passage, at least in our country, the most famous passage in all of Scripture is John 3, verse 16, isn't it? Which says, and all of us here probably know it, for God so loved the what? The world. That he gave his only son that whoever, now see the human component here? God is sovereign over salvation. He's giving his son. We'll put the salvation of God out or the sovereignty of God and salvation out there so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that verse right there, just within the context of that verse, it teaches us what is meant by the world. What is meant by the world? Sinful humanity in opposition to God. That's how we come out of the box. When we're born into this world, we're born as rebels. We rebel against God. We're pushing back against God. But God has so loved this world that he has given his son so that anyone who places their faith and their trust in him, see the human component, anyone who places their faith and trust in him shall never perish but have eternal life, right? So the first interpretation of this verse, we want, and I'm, I'm only bringing it up. I don't always do this, but I think I need to bring it up, is of course Jesus is, uh, here Jesus is praying for his disciples, but that doesn't mean he never prays for the world, and that doesn't mean he doesn't love the world. I, we, do, we don't ever want to go anywhere close to that. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. The second interpretation I want to bring up to your attention about this uh, verse is it's true. It's, it's an interpretation. It's certainly true, but it doesn't go far enough. 
And, and someone could ask, okay, what exactly does Jesus mean by saying, I pray, I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world? Uh, some will say, well, what Jesus is praying for is the uh, instrument that he is creating upon which he will evangelize the world with. Does that make sense? He's praying for the instrument that he is creating upon which he will evangelize the world with. Well, what, 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 what? Is that a true statement? Well, what is the instrument he's creating? He's putting apostles together. These disciples are becoming apostles. What will these apostles do? They will evangelize the world, won't they? And they will leave behind writings that the church will study. And, and here we are, 2000, nearly 2,000 later, and what, what are we doing? We're studying the writings of one of the apostles, aren't we? Okay, so Jesus is creating, he's creating this group, if you will, upon which he will evangelize the world. That's a true statement. So this is why, um, so the interpretation goes, this is why Jesus is making the distinction. He is now praying, he's praying for those uh, who will go and proclaim the gospel throughout the world. This is all 100% true, but I don't think it goes far enough. I think if we go one step farther, we find our hearts suddenly warmed. If you look at verse 9, and you look at the very, at least in the ESV, the very last words of verse 9, see the words, for they are yours. I think it's easy to miss those words because you get shocked with, I'm praying for them and I'm not praying for the world. I think we start to lose, I think we lose the significance of this idea, for they are yours. Let me flesh this out for a little bit. Um, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Why is Jesus praying for them? Answer, because they are yours. I'm praying for them because they belong to you. Now, let, let's, let's flesh this out for a moment. Suppose someone were to say to one of us, no, you're getting it wrong. Jesus only prays for believers. Then we could answer that by saying, okay, so what you're saying is my neighbor who lives two doors down who doesn't believe, Jesus is not praying for him. No, he doesn't believe. Okay, well, what about verse 20? Take a look at verse 20 with me. Notice what Jesus says there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, so you say Jesus is not praying for the world. He's just simply praying for for the disciples, he's just simply praying for believers. So what you're saying is Jesus is not praying for my unbelieving neighbor two doors down? Let's suppose, I, let's suppose they insist no. How do we know that next month our unbelieving neighbor who's two doors down doesn't hear the gospel and come to believe? The fact of the matter is we don't. You follow me now? 
And if we were to ask ourselves, okay, who are, who, who is this group of people? Who is this group of people that the Father is given to the Son? On the, on the divine side, in the grand mystery of it all, all we can say are those, those are the people God has chosen. We're talking about the divine side of things. We're talking about God's side of things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But what about the human side of these things? We don't sit around and wonder if we're, our names are in the book of life. We don't sit around and wonder if our, if our name. What do we do instead? We're being called to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, aren't we? That's what we concern ourselves with. Are you believing in Jesus right now, this morning? Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Are you believing that he died on the cross to take your sins away? Are you believing that when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead to grant eternal life to all who put their faith and trust in him? Are you believing in him? If you are believing in him, he's praying for you. And why is he praying for you? Because you're an instrument that he's going to use in his hands to continue to reach more and more people? There's truth to that. But it's kind of cold, isn't it? And it's not the right answer. See, he's praying for you because you belong to the Father. Now that warms your heart. You have to belong to the Father because if you're in Christ, you're a son or a daughter of God. Right? In the South, they have a saying that goes like this, do you know who my daddy is? You've heard that before, haven't you? I don't know how popular it is now. It used to be really popular. Do you know who your father is? If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, do you realize who your father is? We could spend a lot more time on this, but let's move on. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is, these verses are incredible. Jesus says, all mine are yours. That in and of itself is not such a remarkable verse. I mean, um, Jesus is saying, all mine are yours. And I shouldn't say it's not a remarkable verse. It's God's word. It's remarkable because of that. But every human being should be willing to say that everything I have belongs to God, Right? We might not be willing to say that, but we should be willing to say that. And every believer should say, listen, everything that I have is yours, Lord. It's at your disposal. Do with it what you want. Do with it as you will. We should all be willing to say that, should we not? And Jesus is saying, listen, all mine are yours. But notice what he says after that. He says, all yours are mine. Now, that's something that none of us can say. We can say that all our stuff is God's, and we should say all of our stuff is God's, and we should say, listen, everything I have is yours, and you do with it as you please. It is yours. Do with it as you will. But there isn't a one of us could say, Father, everything that's yours is mine. William Hendrickson on this verse, he makes a comment that just floored me, and it's so true, and it so sets us up for what's coming next. William Hendrickson said that what we have here is mutual ownership. In other words, the Father owns us. We all believe that, right? And the Son owns us. 
And what Hendrickson said is mutual ownership implies mutual interest. And mutual interest assures action. Let me flesh that out for a minute. Mutual ownership. The Father owns us. We all know that. You know, the Son owes us in two ways. We're told that all things are made through the Son, right? All things are made through the Son. So he owns us by virtue of our being created. But he also owns us by the fact that he went to the cross to die for our sins. We've been bought with a price, haven't we? We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. So he owns us in two ways. Now, what Hendrickson is is saying, both the Father and the Son own us. And we take care of the things we own. At least we should, don't we? If we're righteous, we take care of the things we own. The things that we own are precious to us. That's the idea. And because the things that we own are precious to us, that implies interest. We're interested in the things we own. You take to find, you know, you know, these car shows. Someone brought up a car show the other day. It was talking about a car show. You know, those old cars, you know, a lot of people like to go to those shows and look at those old cars. You ever see the way people take care of those cars? Okay, ownership implies interest, doesn't it? And interest assures action. Because these guys love these cars, they take care of these cars. Because they own them and they love them, they take care of them. Let's apply this. Let's take that verse and apply it to God. The Father and the Son own us. That implies interest. How often do we think in our minds that what we're going through right now is something that God's only maybe half interested in? Or maybe we could even get in our heads and think, you know, I don't know, God, you know, there's seven billion of us on the planet. How interested are you in me? Have you ever felt that way? I hope not. I have a sneaking suspicion, though I'm not alone. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? If, the, if you're all going like this, no. <laughs> or if, 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 if I would say this, if, if all of you think I'm the only one that's gone through this, I would have to say I have a sneaking suspicion you're not being honest with me. Lord, it's just little old me, and I'm back with my little old problem, you know, and um, in the grand scheme of things, um, it's really not even a, a blip on the radar screen. Well, this verse right here should throw that out the window. Jesus says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know... Jesus is saying that he is glorified in them, and they're all about to abandon him. Probably within an hour or so after, after this prayer, Jesus is arrested in the garden, and the moment he's arrested, what happens? They scatter and they leave him all alone. You see how gracious our God is towards us? You know, you find yourself in a conversation, and suddenly a door opens wide for you to begin to share the gospel, and you chicken out, and you don't do it. And you leave there feeling so defeated. And it's like, Lord, I abandon you. Oh, yeah. Now, how's God looking at us after we do that? Well, we begin to think God's like us, don't we? How would we treat us if we had done this to ourselves? And we begin to do this, you know. But then you look at these verses and you see how gracious God is with us. 
Why? He owns us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus into the world to purchase us from his justice. Mutual ownership. William Hendrickson just hit the ball out of the park. Mutual ownership implies mutual interest. And mutual interest assures us of action. So when the child of God falls down, what does the father do with his son or daughter who has just fallen down? Mutual ownership implies mutual interest. Mutual interest assures us of action. That's a fancy way to say it. We wouldn't say it that way. We'd say it like this. He reaches down and he picks you up. After all, it's what we do with our children, right? Isn't it? Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And where I'm trying to run to this morning is this idea of keep. See the word keep in verse 11. Jesus' petition for his disciples is that the Father keeps them. You'll see it again in verse 12. Jesus says, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them. And you'll see it again in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's the title of this morning's message is kept. This mutual ownership implies mutual interest. And mutual interest assures us of action. What action? If we've put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus, the Father will keep us in Christ Jesus. We could just say it in the past tense and say kept. We are kept. How, how much assurance comes from that? I mean, especially when we look around at everything that's going on in this world and we see the wheels falling off of everything everywhere. But notice what Jesus' petition is. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. When he says, I'm no longer in the world, he's speaking of the certainty of the cross. He's speaking about it as if it has already happened. It's certain. Jesus is going to die on the cross, and when he dies on the cross, his soul is going to be in the presence of the Father. Three days later, his soul is reunited to his body. He, he rises from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, right? Okay, this thing's, this thing, Father, this thing's about over here. I'm no longer in the world. But they're still here. They're still here, Father. Notice the reference, Holy Father. The only place in the New Testament where fathers referred to this way. Holy Father. It's the only place. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Well, how, what does that mean? Keep them in the revelation that I've given you. Keep them, keep them in, if you will. If you look and study the ministry of Jesus, and we've been we've been looking at and in, in, in our Bible study in the park on, on Monday afternoons. We've been looking at Mark's gospel, and we've been looking at Jesus as he goes through and as he goes about doing his various healings, his teaching, and everything. And what do you see constantly happening? You see the disciples going to the right. You see the disciples going to the left. And what does Jesus do? He keeps gathering them up. He keeps teaching them. He keeps showing them. He keeps instructing them. He keeps revealing more and more things about him. What is he doing? He's keeping them. He's guarding them. Now he's leaving to go with the Father, and what is he praying? Father, keep them. 
I have kept them while I was here. Father, keep them. What does that mean? Keeping us in. And, and, and ask yourself, how many times, how many times have you deviated to the left or to the right, and you walk for a little while, and finally, suddenly you see, you know what? My heart isn't right here. Okay, when you, in that moment in time, when you said, you know, my heart isn't right here, what do you think was going on? The Father is answering this prayer. Because if it weren't for the Father, what would you do? You just keep going. You'd fall away. But you haven't been able to do that, have you? Someone said, well, I could fall away really easy. Oh, really? I don't want to give you any false sense. Listen, it's a dangerous way to talk, and I'm not going to say much more than that about it. But I want us to realize that we're kept. If we weren't kept, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't be sitting here. Doesn't mean we can't fall. Sometimes we can fall a long ways. Sometimes the Lord will instruct us, and that's the danger. We don't, we don't want to abuse what I'm saying here. But Jesus says, Holy Father, keep in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. We're going to skip over the unity right now. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. You see, here's the danger of continuing in unbelief. What did Judas Iscariot do? He continued in unbelief. He continued to push back against the clear light that was given him. And what happened? He is, made re he is referred to as the son of destruction. This is the exact same language that's used in 2 Thessalonians 2 when it speaks of the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness, the man who will come and show up before Jesus returns, the man of lawlessness is the son of perdition or the son of destruction. Judas Iscariot here is a, is a type, if you will, uh, of the son of perdition. And what is it? It's a warning to us. It's a warning to all of us about it. We have a responsibility to receive Christ, don't we? We have a responsibility to believe uh, in his word. If you look at verse 15, and I'll close with that, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Literally, it says to just keep them from evil. You'll notice there's a footnote there uh, that says that, or from evil if you have an ESV there, there's a footnote that says, or from evil. But the idea is that we'd be kept from the evil one. Who is the evil one? He is Satan. He is far more powerful than any of us. He's far more powerful than us collectively and all of us together. But it's the Father who protects us. That doesn't mean he can't cause a lot of problems in our life. He can, and indeed he does. But it is refreshing to know that we're kept by the Father. And I also want you to put together the logic that's behind that. Mutual ownership. Verse 10, all mine are yours, yours are mine. That implies mutual interest. Let us get it out of our heads. I want to try to get it out of my head, but let us get it out of our heads that when we're praying, 
that our situation is uninteresting to God. He is keenly interested in every detail of our lives. And this mutual ownership and this mutual interest implies the action that he's bringing us home. He is going to keep us, and he is going to bring us home. You know, we read from Jude this morning because Jude speaks of the human side of this, and Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. You see, that's the human side of it. What are we to do? We're to continue on, continuing on, just like we are. But it's helpful to know as we do that that we're kept, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I hope these words are clear. Father, I pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to bless us, O Father. The passage that we come to, Lord, in many ways, I think is very difficult. There are many things that are said in it that are difficult and hard to understand. And, Father, our minds, they're weak. And, Father, uh, oftentimes, Lord, we are so, most of the time, 100% of the time, we are so frail. Well, Father, I pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to bless us this morning, that you'd be pleased, oh, Father, to teach us and cause these things to reverberate in our minds. And if we remember anything, Lord, that we remember that Jesus has prayed, he has prayed, oh, Father, that you will keep us. You'll keep us from the evil one. You'll keep us from a sustained period of unbelief. You'll keep us from ultimately falling away to our ruin. And, oh, Lord, we so thank you for this great truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.